0: Our first reading is from Isaiah chapter 14. So we will start reading at verse 12 until verse 15. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heavens. I will raise my throne above the star of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. On the utmost heights of Mansaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. The other passage we are going to read today is from Luke chapter ten. We are going to read from verse 1 to twenty-two, twenty-four. 24, sorry. After this, the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet, as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, then would have been repentant long ago. Sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy and said, "Lord." Even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Um, well, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us. It's a long reading, isn't it? And I hope you managed to, to follow along in it. And, and as uh, Ross has teed up at the beginning, this is also a quite a complicated passage, and it's Got some concepts in there which are hard to get our heads around. And I'm expecting it's going to raise a lot of questions for us. And we might not have question time uh, after the service today, but we'll have a bit of Q&A later at Dwell if you want to bring some of those questions there. But also, please come and grab me later. I think you'll be helped to follow along uh, with the service sheet to see where I'm going to go in a moment's time. I think you'll be helped to grab a pen and jot down thoughts and questions as we go along. Um, but we need God's help. Uh, I need God's help. And so... Let, let us pray. Father God, we just sung a moment ago how Jesus's face was set. Thank you, Lord, for our redemption in Jesus Christ. But I pray that today would come to appreciate more what it is that we have been redeemed from. And how much our world needs this redemption. In the complexities of this passage, and the the the, I guess the philosophical philosophical ideas it throws up, Lord, please help us to understand. Give us eyes that see and hearts that desire to obey. Amen. Um, over the summer, I've been um, working through various um, war films. I like war films. And I, I, by the way, there are about four, five references to war films in this sermon. If you don't like war films, don't worry. There won't be any war film references next week. But one war film I did watch uh, this uh, that last summer was Darkest Hour. Now, maybe you saw it. It's a true story. I'm following uh, Winston Churchill, the prime minister's famous crisis period in 1940. You may know this at the, the, the time, the Allies are, are quickly losing ground against the Nazis in occupied Europe, in France. And the remnant of the British Army, some 300,000 soldiers, are now trapped, penned in on the beaches of Dunkirk. There are no Allies to come and help them, no reinforcements on the way. The odds of victory, the odds of survival, seem insurmountable. So every single person on Winston's war cabinet, they're telling Winston to, to, to make peace with Hitler. Because maybe if we make peace with Hitler, maybe then he won't then invade the British Isles. Yeah, we've lost Europe, but maybe we can stay safe here. So let's sue for peace. Well, Christopher Nolan's film, Dunkirk, it narrates the same story, but this time from the point of view of the soldiers on the beaches. You see, when the Luftwaffe, the, air, the German Air Force, when they aren't bombing the soldiers or, or mowing them down with machine gun fire, they're dropping propaganda leaflets on their heads. That leaflet's looked a lot like this. They said to these soldiers, we surround you. Surrender. And survive. Well, in our passage today, Jesus reminds us that our world is occupied territory, not to human tyrants like Hitler or Putin, however bad they might be, but ultimately to an unseen spiritual enemy. Our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving family, our unbelieving colleagues are by nature under Satan's dominion. Now, I'm aware, even as I say that, some eyes are rolling. Oh, come on, this is nonsense. This is superstitious nonsense. How can you say this? How can you believe this? You see, to, since the, the time of the Enlightenment, we've been trained to think, haven't we, that the only world that is, is the world that can be measured empirically, which sounds very sensible. Until you realize that, of course, there's much in our world that can't be measured, that, that can't be quantified. So many of our friends who aren't Christians, they might go along with the idea that there's a God. There's a God who made us and created us. And he gives like objective value to the unquantifiable things in life. Things like beauty and dignity and equality and morality and justice. We believe in those things and we believe there might be a God who sort of defines those things. But if you mention Satan <laughs> in polite society, immediately everyone thinks you're a nutcase. And they sort of conjure up images in their head of like a, a little man wearing red types with, with, with a pitchfork, don't they? That's, that's how people think. But if people believe in a personal and powerful spiritual entity called God, why is it harder then to believe in a powerful and personal enemy of God. This is the enemy in whose dominion are our unbelieving friends. That's where they live. They may not know it. They may not believe it. But they are in dire need of redemption. So the question is how can that re- redemption possibly come about? And if you're here last week if you look down at the end of chapter 9 we we saw in how Jesus' face was resolutely set for Jerusalem, set for redeeming his people. And then he calls us, his followers, to make his resolute priority our resolute priority. So, do you remember chapter 9, verse 60? Jesus tells one would be follower, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So let me ask you, how do you feel about that mission? How do you feel about that prospect? I wonder if at, time we, at times we might feel like the soldiers at Dunkirk. Surrounded, outnumbered, driven to panic and despair because frankly the odds of victory seem insurmountable, don't they? We are quite possibly the only Christian in our company the only Christian in our school or on our course. So perhaps we should listen to the propaganda and surrender. Give in and give up on this mission. Or maybe at times we feel like Winston Churchill. Um, tempted to give up and sue for peace with the enemy. Let's dust our hands of those people in captivity. Uh, let, let's just cease our evangelistic efforts. Let's stop talking about Jesus. Because hey, we're saved. We're safe here so why should we bother with them over there? Friends, our world is occupied territory. And today, we're going to hear Jesus' plan to take it all back. So the first thing Jesus tells us to do in this spiritual battle, firstly, is to pray for projection. Not protection, projection. Projection. Would you look at verse 1? If you close your Bibles, uh, it's page 782. 782. It says this. After this, the Lord, Jesus, appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him, or literally before his face, to every town and place where he was about to go. Now, if you've been at CCB for over a year, you may be getting a little bit of deja vu. Because you might think, oh, hang on, haven't we already had this passage? Hasn't Jesus already sent out his disciples on mission? I'm pretty sure that happened in chapter 9. In fact, if you flip back a page, that did happen back in chapter 9. Uh, there, Jesus sent out the 12. And they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But here, Jesus sends out a different number. He sends out 72. And they represent his mission to the nations. Now, I need to persuade you of this point, and, and forgive me if I lose you in some of the detail, but we need to a bit, do a bit of digging. Um, you might remember from um, Genesis chapter 10, or maybe our Chronicle series last term, how Noah had a huge number of offspring. In fact, how many offspring did he have? 72. There we go, and you may be missing these sort of diagrams from our Chronicle series, I don't know, maybe you haven't. The sort of panic attacks coming back. Um, here we go. Sort of, he had 72. And these 72 people are, are like the founding fathers of the 72 nations known to the Israelites. But then you may know as a result of the Tower of Babel, these 72 people were, were scattered across the earth. And not only that, God disinherited these nations. He, he handed them over to their idolatry. So he gave, for example, the, the Egyptians over to Ra and the Babylonians over to Marduk and the Canaanites over to Baal, whatever, over to their idols. But behind these many so-called gods, we gather there is a genuine spiritual reality. There is a satanic reality. And since that time, our world has been occupied territory. Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. However, as you may know, the story, Jesus, uh, God promised Abraham that through his people, Israel, God would then one day reinherit the nations. And, and throughout the Old Testament, we see snapshots of this through people like Abraham, Moses, David, but it's only now in Jesus Christ, that we get the fulfillment of this promise. Here is Jesus. He is the king of God's kingdom. And so if you look down, his words here in verse 1, what, what are they supposed to speak to us? Well, they're supposed to show us that Jesus isn't content, content only to redeem his people, the Jews. His plan is also to redeem all the nations, and many of whom are represented here today. Um, Anais from uh, Brazil, is that right? Venezuela, sorry. Venezuela, nearly. Venezuela, who did a reading a moment ago. I, I, I see some people from Dubai. I see some people from Nigeria. We have people from all sorts of like, God's, Jesus' plan is to redeem the nations, including us Brits. And here they are, that Jesus sends them out before him. So what we're seeing here, I guess it's like a trailer for the book of Acts. It's a foretaste of what we see in the book of Acts. These guys are going out ahead of Jesus to proclaim his kingdom. Now, imagine you're one of these 72. What are you feeling? <laughs> right, here's the plan. You're going to proclaim the kingdom to the nations. And you're like, what, us? 72? In fact, we're going out two by two, so it's more like 36. Um, how, how does that work? I mean, how, how can that possibly work? We're completely outnumbered hopelessly outgunned. How can this be the plan? And often I feel like this. I'm, I, each day I have my quiet time in the mornings. I, I do it in the office, because um, I'm not going to get any peace and quiet at home. And, um, and we've got a big glass front. And so as I'm reading my Bible and praying, I'm seeing hundreds, literally hundreds of commuters walking past, and schoolchildren going off to their school. And often catch myself thinking, I, I just wonder how many of these people have a saving knowledge of Jesus. Of the 9 million people in this great city, only 5% are attached to a, a Bible-believing church like this. You see, we are massively outnumbered, hugely outgunned. Uh, so like Winston or, or, or the soldiers at, at Dunkirk, it's easy then to fall into panic, isn't it? Easy to fall into despair. But instead, Jesus calls us to pray for projection. Look at verse 2. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, we prayed the Lord's Prayer earlier on, didn't we? And we're used to praying for protection from the evil one. But here Jesus calls us to pray for projection. Here he calls us to pray to God to throw outwards, literally propel outwards, more workers into this harvest field. And this harvest language is really interesting. It's only ever used in one other place, in the book of Joel. And in chapter 3 in Joel, all of the nations are gathered and they're all united Ready for war. But they're fighting against God. They're rebelling against God. And it's the last day. And God goes out with his sickle. And he describes how they are ripe for the harvest. They're going to face his wrath. So the surprise here in this passage that is that the Lord of the harvest does not meet the nations in war. Not just yet. Yet. No, rather he sends out messengers ahead of him to offer them peace. Peace. Look at verse 3. Go, go. I am sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Don't take a purse or a bag or an extra pair of sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. I guess the, if you never understood it, the Christian message, the Christian good news is essentially one of peace being offered. We are by nature, I guess, at war with God. We're hostile to, to his rule over us. We want to be in charge. We want to put the crown on our own head. And also as a result of that, we're suffering under bondage to sin and Satan and ultimately death. We're at war. But God, in his great mercy, he sends us Jesus to offer us peace. Isn't that what the angels announced when he was born, at his birth? Peace. And the way he'd win that, here's Jesus and his face is resolutely set on Jerusalem, to offer us peace. So what are we doing then by praying this prayer of projection? Well, I guess what we're doing is that we're praying ourselves into being those agents of peace. We're essentially praying, Lord, send me. So I, I love that I, I was hearing this week about how the, the mums at Boppers, which is one of our, our outreach ministries to, to babies and toddlers and their parents and before all the other mums come, what, what do they do? They gather in the kitchen and they pray. Lord, give us opportunities to speak of Jesus with some of the people who are coming today. They pray. And as a result of that, we've seen people like Liz Davies come along to church and then get saved. I love the Prayer Warriors WhatsApp group. Are you in the Prayer Warriors WhatsApp group? Any Anyone can join it. And throughout the week, you get various people saying, can you pray for my opportunity to do this? Can you, can you pray for the, um, the, the neighborhood care team who are coming out this, going out this afternoon to knock on doors in Balaam and, and, and speak with people? They're always asking for prayer. And I have a friend who, who every morning in his quiet time, he prays, Lord, today, please give me an opportunity to speak about Jesus. And here's his observation. He says that when I pray for opportunities, God gives them to me. But when he doesn't pray for opportunities, they, they tend not to come. And we don't have time to go into detail in all of Jesus' instructions to the 72. I, I preached on the, the chapter 9 passage uh, last year, so you can look up that if you're interested in some of the details. But, but essentially, <laughs> I guess in contrast to the nations who are who are seeking independence from God. The 72 go out to proclaim peace in dependence on God. They aren't to worry about money or clothes or shelter. They have to stay rooted in one place, trusting that those who accept this gospel of peace will house them and put them up. But notice in verse 9, that the message of the 72 isn't purely academic. It isn't just a message. No, their, their message is accompanied by the same extraordinary miracles that Jesus performed. Verse 9, heal those who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, this probably should go without saying, but as Christians, we're, we're not promised that will never suffer with sickness or illness or death or war. As we've been praying earlier on, there are plenty of people in our congregation who are suffering with these things. But, but these 72, they're like ambassadors and they are, they're giving the nations a foretaste, a trailer of what Jesus' kingdom will be like when he returns. Because when Jesus returns, there will be no sickness. There will be no death. There will be no crying or pain or war. Peace will have come. And, and later in, in verse 17, we also discover that the 72 are driving out demons wherever they go. And I'm going to need a helper for this. Mario, I'm going to call you up to the front. Yes, I'm going to embarrass you. Sorry. You're the first person in my eye line. Um, you're going to represent Satan. Okay. Is that all right? We good for this? And the dominion of darkness. Okay. Hands up here. You see, he's a big guy, isn't he? But don't worry, because I'm representing Jesus and his kingdom. And as the kingdom of God advances, what happens to Satan's dominion? You see, diminished? Dimin- you can sit down now, Satan. I mean, uh, Mario, give him a round of applause. This is a zero-sum game, isn't it? As the kingdom of God advances, it's inevitable. Satan's dominion is diminished. As, as people come to put their trust in Jesus as saviour, they are rescued out of Satan's realm and brought into God's kingdom. Now, we aren't the 72. We're more than 72 here this morning. But we are still called to declare this gospel of peace. We are called to be a cause for peace, a cause of spiritual healing, a, a cause of spiritual redemption in people's lives. And so we should stop and consider, is, is this my MO? Is this my priority? As we heard last Sunday. I kind of get it because this passage is quite spectacular, isn't it? You know, exorcisms and, and healings. And we're thinking, well, it doesn't quite look like my nine to five in the office. You know, it doesn't seem that, that dramatic, does it? But don't be fooled. There is a real spiritual battle going on. Um, can I commend you a TV show called um, The Band of Brothers? Hands up if you've seen this show. It's, it's quite old now. It came out when I was a teenager. It's, it's got to be in the best, top five best ever TV shows ever made. It's astonishingly good. It, it follows the um, the US 101st Airborne Division, uh, Easy Company, um, from D-Day when they landed in France all the way through uh, to VE Day. Fantastic show. But the reason it's fantastic is it's based on real stories. And at the start of each episode, before it gets into the acting and the drama, they show these interviews with the, with the old guys um, the, the, who are there, the veterans, and they interview them about what they experienced before you then meet the actors and they do their thing. There's one particular episode where they're just describing an average day in their foxhole. Uh, once or twice, a German tank drives by and they kind of shoot at it. Most of the time, they're smoking cigarettes, playing cards. There's a few moments when they're involved in a fierce firefight, but... Mostly the day passes like any other, nothing spectacular. But it's only later that they discover that they participated in the Battle of the Bulge, which, as we you know, is one of the largest, most decisive engagements in the whole of World War Two. It didn't feel decisive at the time because they, they, they only got a small picture of it. But they were there. Friends, we are involved in the spiritually most significant conflict, decisive engagement in all of human history. But we won't be useful in this battle unless we get that bigger picture. We won't be useful in this battle unless we pray for projection, for God to send us out work as workers. So, yeah, I think all of us do need to pray. We all need to pray that God would send out more workers into this harvest field. All of us need to pray that ourselves would be messengers of peace. Some of us here we perhaps do need to consider whether we should be doing that full time. And I know a number of us are considering that at the moment. But here's the thing. I've been sort of thinking about this passage this week. I think perhaps one of the biggest barriers to us actually opening our mouths and talking about Jesus with people surely the fear that they won't like us if we do. I don't know about you, but I like to be liked. I'm not a sociopath. I, I like people to like me. I want people to, 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 you know, to be affectionate to me, and I hate the feeling that I might have upset someone, and I hate the feeling that someone's angry with me. I can't bear that. I lose sleep over it. I think there's this good instinct in us to want to be liked, but friends, We've never promised as Christians to be universally popular. Jesus never promises us that. In fact, as he saw in verse 3, he says he sends us out as lambs amongst wolves. So even as we pray for projection, the second thing we're going to see is that he tells us we should also expect some rejection. Look at verse 10. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed... Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town, we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, the day of judgment, for Sodom than for that town. Sodom is a famously wicked town in the Old Testament, in the, in the days of Abraham. Um, his nephew Lot lived in, foolishly lived in this city of Sodom. And um, God sends heavenly messengers to Lot to plead with him, get out the city, get out, get your family out the city. But when the inhabitants of Sodom realise that these heavenly messengers are in Lot's house, they, they form a mob, they surround the house, and then they bang on the door and they shout at Lot to send out the, the messengers in order that they might rape them. To cut a very long story short, Lot and his daughters managed to escape the city. And shortly afterwards, the Lord rains down fire from heaven upon them, upon the city, destroying it. Now, as bad as it was for Sodom, who treated God's messengers so horrifically. Jesus says, the fate will be worse for those who reject his messengers of peace. Because to them, so much more truth has been revealed. So much more of God's gracious mercy and character has been offered to them. Here is Jesus. Remember him again. His face is set on Jerusalem, set to win this people peace. But if people reject that peace, what are they choosing? War. War with God. But even as Jesus sends out the 72 on mission to the Gentile nations, he, he then sort of starts reflecting on how successful his mission has been to the Jewish people, his own people. Now look at verse 13. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. As you can see from this map behind me, Corazon and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they're Jewish towns. Places where Jesus has himself been in previous chapters. He's preached there, he's done various miracles there. And yet, shockingly, despite all of that truth, despite all of that revelation, those towns refused to repent and believe. But as you zoom out, if I can show you the next map, uh, Tyre is a Gentile town. A place where the 72 would, would have been going to. This city was famous throughout the Old Testament for its wealth, for its pride, for its independence from God. And yet Jesus says it will be better for Tyre on the day of judgment than those Jewish towns. Because if Tyre had what Capernaum had, they would have repented I guess Jesus is establishing here a principle that we're going to be judged according to what we do with what we know. The more you know, the more is expected of you. Capernaum, what do they have? Well, they, they're Jewish. They knew the scriptures. They heard the Son of God preaching those scriptures. They saw the Son of God doing miracles, confirming here's the fulfillment of those scriptures. And yet, as a result of their unrepentance, Jesus says that they'll be like Babylon or Satan, as we heard in our first reading. They're going to be brought down to hell. Now, normally in my preaching, I'm very careful not to throw that word around easily because of the emotional freight that it carries. I normally only speak of it when Jesus does. But Jesus cannot be clearer here, could he? If you reject this gracious offer of peace from God. You are choosing war. With God. So please, if you are here today and you're not yet trusting in Jesus. Please do not delay. Please do not endlessly fob him off with excuses or endless philosophical red herrings. What about people who've never heard? You have heard. You have heard. And on that last day, you will be without excuse. You are responsible for how you respond to his message and his messengers. But for those of us today, I imagine the majority of us who, who are trusting in Jesus... These passages should also be a wake-up call for us. Because the stakes at play in this mission, they couldn't be bigger, could they? Um, how much do we really love Balam? How much do we really love our friends, our, our family, our neighbours who don't know him? Are we willing to risk being unpopular? Are we willing to risk that friendship? In order that we might save that friend. See, we could do what Winston's war cabinet did in darkest hour, couldn't we? We could um, just give up on those in occupied territory, bunker up here, say, hey, we're safe. Why should we bother about them? We could say that. But why would we do that when it is within our capacity to spare them from this fate of hell? Jesus has given us authority to speak. And so speak we must Look at verse uh, 16. Jesus says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Whew. OK, so far, this has all been incredibly heavy, hasn't it? This is hard. This is hard teaching. Uh, he's sending us out to declare peace to a world which is at war with God. And this is going to be dangerous. We're going to have to be in dependence upon Him. We're to expect discouragements. And... But here's the paradox. Here's the surprise that Jesus expects us not to return burned out and discouraged, but to return rejoicing. We're to pray for projection, expect some rejection. Thirdly, we're to rejoice in election. I was very pleased with these headings as I worked on them this week. Um, look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, joy, and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw, or literally in the Greek, I was seeing Satan fall. Like lightning from heaven, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions, and to overcome the, all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So, as Mario illustrated with me earlier on, as the kingdom of God advances, it's inevitable that Satan's dominion is gonna diminish. Jesus says that as the seventy-two go around proclaiming peace, that he saw. Satan's inevitable downfall being played out before his eyes. So like those soldiers in the Battle of the Bulge, the 72 probably weren't aware of that big picture, were they? As they were in that little town sharing this gospel of peace to like the 15 or 20 people there. They probably didn't think this is very impressive. They probably didn't think this is a very big thing. But behind that was something much bigger. Behind every conversation you have about Jesus, behind every invitation to church, behind every gathering of boppers or blazers or the friendship cafe, which met yesterday, or the neighborhood care team, bit by bit by bit, Satan is losing ground. Jesus says, I, I see it. I'm seeing it. As the 72 go about their work. Now, some Pentecostal churches you might know, um, they kind of take Jesus' promise here of protection from serpents. They take it rather literalistically, don't they? And, and it's, a, it's a theological mistake, which sadly is deadly um, for, for some. But they, they miss the imagery here. Just as Jesus is the long-promised serpent crusher from Genesis chapter 3, also we, his people, in his name, are given authority to push Satan back, to crush him underfoot, to make advances into enemy territory. And I think just as the 70 have returned with joy to Jesus, we have the joy of seeing this around us here at CCB, don't we? We are seeing people come to faith more this year than, than any other. We are seeing the Lord add to our number we're seeing outreach ministries thriving, our connect groups loving. We're seeing, like the 72, Satan big pushback inch by inch, yard by yard. And yeah, I was chatting about this passage with a, a commission pastor this, this past week, and he said, Well, we've got to be careful, haven't we? Because rejoicing in, in fruit of ministry is very brittle. It's very brittle. Because if we look here for, for the, sort of the, the advances we're making, if we're looking there for our joy, well, we're constantly going to be looking there uh, for, for joy. We're constantly deriving our joy from, from successes we're seeing. And we'd be then discouraged when we don't see those things. So I think we need to be reminded, I need to be reminded, particularly of what Jesus says in verse 20. He says to the 72, however, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the um, in the ancient Near East, it's it very common for kings to do censuses of all of their people. So Caesar Augustus, in chapter two of Luke, does that, doesn't he? He wants to make a census of all the people in his empire so that he can write down their names in his book. So he has an accurate picture of who it is who's in his kingdom. And so I guess if your name was written in the king's book, it's a proof of your citizenship. Jesus calls us not to rejoice in the advances that we're making. Oh, look at us. He calls us to rejoice in the fact that we have been counted. That we have been chosen. That we have been elected for salvation. Why has God chosen me, you might ask? Why, why me? Is it because I just have to be in the right place at the right time? Is it that we're morally superior or, or intellectually superior, spiritually superior than, than others? Absolutely not. And in verse 21, Jesus breaks into this exuberant, trinitarian prayer. And you could argue this is the happiest moment that we have recorded in Jesus' life. Look at verse 21. At that time, the 72 returning, Jesus, full of joy, literally full of exuberant ecstasy, wow, that's strong, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was what you're pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows who the son is except the father. And no one knows who the father is except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Isn't it tragic when you meet Christians who, who confuse their salvation with superiority, who think that they're better or cleverer than those who aren't Christians? We, above all people on earth, should be the most humble. Because we know we're only saved by God's undeserved mercy and grace and peace, which has been offered to us. In Jesus' imagery here, we were like ignorant children who had the knowledge of the truth revealed to us. We were blind and dead and yet were chosen to see and have life. So now we're on to predestination. Hey, exactly what you wanted to hear at the end of the sermon. This is a heavy topic, isn't it? And I'm, I'm not going to be able to do full justice to this, but we'll be speaking on it uh, later in the year at Dwell. But this predestination, this idea that God has a chosen people, God has an elect whom he has promised to save from the beginning of time. And, and I get it. It's, it's a doctrine which people tie themselves in knots about, isn't it? And, but I hope you see that it is right here on Jesus' lips. Consider it for, for a moment with me. In order for God to be God, he has to be sovereign over everything. Not just all of creation, which he made, but all of time, which he also made. Hey, so, which means he, he preordained everything at, at the point of creation. He preordained everything that, that was and is and will be. If he wasn't in control all of the, all that, he wouldn't be God, would he? Because something else, like time, would be bigger than him. But that then begs the question, well, if God has preordained everything, how are then we to be held responsible? Surely we're just robots, just, just going through the motions of what he had already preordained would happen. Surely those who reject Christ were always going to do so, if that's right. But think about your lived and your felt experience is that you do make real decisions. And when you do wrong, you feel guilty and culpable for it. Jesus clearly earlier on in this passage, he, he, he holds those Jewish towns responsible for rejecting him. So the Bible then holds these two truths in parallel. God is both sovereign over all of time and all of space. And yet within time and space, we make real decisions for which we are really responsible. I think the best way to illustrate this is with a novel. Here is a novel plucked off my shelf, uh, which my daughter's reading at the moment, Harry Potter. There we go. J.K. Rowling wrote this novel. Here it is in its entirety. She wrote the beginning, uh, the middle, and the end of the novel. It's all there. It's all written. It's all preordained. It's all fixed. And yet, as you read the story, the, the characters, Harry and Hermione and Ron, they ma- they're making decisions for which they are responsible and things happen. And as you turn, go through the pages, there they are. A, it's almost like a different rule from God, seeing all of time and space at once, and those who are actually in the story, making real decisions as we go along. Maybe that's helpful, maybe it's not. Now I know some, some people find this idea quite offensive. But can I go on a thought experiment? Would you be willing to bear with me and consider the alternative for a moment? Imagine that there is no grand narrative. Imagine that there is no plan and no purpose. God is out of control of things happening in his creation. And you and I, we have no real assurance that our names are written in his book. We, we don't even have a guarantee of winning in the end. Why? Because the end hasn't yet been written. Forgive me if I've lost you in all of that philosophy. <laughs> but here's why this truth really matters. Our joy is at stake. Our joy. This is Jesus' happiest moment recorded in the Gospels. And he's rejoicing that God has a people whom he will save. Not the strong and the big and the impressive and the independent. But those who are like us. The weak, the small, the insignificant, the outsiders. So he says in verse 23. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Have you ever considered the fact that it is a miracle that you are saved? It's a miracle. Downfall. Have you seen Downfall? This is the last film reference. Now I'm going to sit down. Uh, Downfall is, is uh, the story of um, Hitler's last days in that bunker in Berlin. And it's based on um, real recorded evidence of what he said in those final days and hours. Apparently, he, sp- he said to one of his lieutenants, I know the war is lost. The enemy superiority is too great. We will not capitulate ever. We may go down, but we will take this world with us. It's a great illustration, I think, of Satan's own thinking. He knows he's lost. He was defeated at the cross. He knows he's going to lose in the end. And yet he keeps on fighting and he's going to bring down everyone with him. And when this film was being um, released in the UK, there was a great advertising campaign which ran with it. It's a happy ending. He dies. The good news, friends, is that there is a book. The good news, friends, is that the ending has been written. The good news, friends, is that God has an elect whom he will save. And there are people in your street they're people in your clubs. They're people who are your friends and your family. God has a people whom he will save. We know the ending. And so we go out proclaiming peace, rejoicing in our salvation. Let me pray. Oh, Father God, these are hard truths, heavy truths, but this is what we need to hear. Father, please, I pray, do not allow this word to just land in our heads and then be plucked out straight away. Lord, please, would you send us out this week as messengers of peace? We consider those who don't know Jesus, who aren't yet repenting and believing. Have mercy on them, Lord. Lord, would we have the joy of seeing Satan's continual downfall, knowing that in the end we will win because of Jesus. Amen.